Good morning, everybody. I'm Steve Pruitt, and I get the high privilege of sharing God's Word with you this morning. If you want to track along with me, there's several ways that you can do that. One of them is that there are Bibles in the shelves under the pew. The pew, that's old school. It's because I'm wearing this. Um, um, yeah. Bibles, borrow one, take one, whatever. You may want to open to Acts 13 and kind of be there to be able to track along with me. That'd be good. Also, there are notes at the communion tables up here and in the back, and you're welcome to just go grab some notes. That may help you as well. And then uh, if you have a device with you that has version on it, that's pretty easy to track that way as well. You can open the app and click on more and then events and then your GPS should bring up element and there it is. So would you stand with me for the reading of God's word? We're going to read from a writing of the Apostle Paul about his life's mission in Romans chapter 15 verses 20 and 21. He says, it has always been my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ was not known so that I would not be building on someone else's foundation. Rather, as it is written, those who were not told about him will see and those who have not heard will understand. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the good news of the gospel, that it made it into our modern world and that someone was faithful to communicate it to us in a way that we could understand. As we open this book of Acts again today and we see the ways that you led these faithful believers as they spread the gospel, help us to see how we can be more effective in the way we reach out to the lost world around us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. You can be seated. The Apostle Paul's life mission, according to him, was to get the good news of the gospel to people who had not heard and to do it in such a way that they could see and understand it. That's a pretty simple mission, but not an easy one by any means, especially if you track his journeys and see all of the things that he faced along the way. If you will turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 13, we're going to pick up last week's message with a kind of a part two. Last week in the first few verses, we looked at what it was about this church in Antioch that made them ready for the task of reaching the world. We called it the marks of a church on mission. And now we're going to pick up the story in verse 4, going all the way to verse 12, Lord willing. And we're going to talk about the strategies of a church on mission. These guys launched out as pioneers on their first missionary journey. And as we watch God lead them out, I want to see if maybe we can learn some things about the strategies they used that are going to be helpful to us as we want to reach out to people with the gospel, whether it's here or far away. 
We're going to dive right into verse 4. It says, So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. So right away you see the pioneers launching out full speed ahead. The church has sent them out, and here they go. And the first strategy that you see them using is what I'd call a spirit-led strategy. In verse 4 it says they're sent on their way by the Holy Spirit. He's the one who's sending them, and as we go through the passage we're going to see that he's also the one who's leading them and even telling them what to say and how to act along the way. And as they encounter uh, challenges in the coming verses, you see them responding to the Spirit's leading and to his control all along the way, which is so essential for a church or a person on mission if we're going to accomplish the task. Jesus said so very clearly in John 15, 5, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will bear much fruit. And then he says, apart from me, you can do what? Nothing. That's a pretty definite statement that we need him First and foremost, we need the work of the Holy Spirit and the power and wisdom. Any lasting mission work has to be first and last a spirit-led mission. So this passage then goes on to tell about the first place that the Spirit leads these guys to go, and it's the island of Cyprus. Uh, This is most likely the first time the gospel heads out over the water to another land, and uh, kind of exciting. Cyprus was right in the path of a major shipping channel, and so people were passing through Cyprus all the time. Uh, Cyprus is also Barnabas' home island, so he probably had family and friends there. And I know I'm putting words in his mouth, uh, but I can just imagine him saying, especially if he were me, wait a minute, Lord, Cyprus, um, didn't you say that a prophet is without honor in his own country? So wouldn't it be so much better if you chose somebody else than sending me back to my family to tell them the good news? And isn't it true that sometimes your family's the hardest ones to reach because they just sort of diss you because they know you too well or whatever the reason is that they do that? But sometimes it's just very, very hard. But... <clears throat> Here you see that the Spirit is so very definitely leading them, and it just looks like they have the confidence that where the Spirit leads them, He's going to use them, and they just launch right out. Second strategy that you see here is what I'd call a a cultural strategy. Verse 5 says, when they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. Now, there are probably several good reasons for doing this particular thing. One thing is that the synagogue was a spiritual center in many cities. It may be one of many, but it was a spiritual center where most people thought about and talked about spiritual things. Also, since they were... um, 
Jewish in the synagogues, they would have the Old Testament background, and that would give the missionaries a foot in the door to talk about how Jesus was the fulfillment of Old Testament scriptures and prophecies that these people already knew. So looking at their culture and what they were interested in, they go to the synagogues. And also, Paul and Barnabas knew that there would be an opening because almost all of the synagogues at the end of a service had a chance for guests to come and either do a reading or do some commenting on the scriptures. And so they knew that it would almost definitely be an open door for them. And Paul says in Romans 1.16 that the gospel was to be for the Jew first and then for the Gentile. And that was the pattern that they generally followed until the Jews started rejecting the message consistently. And when that happened, then the missionaries changed their strategy and turned to the Gentiles. Like you actually start see it start happening at the end of this chapter where they say, since you're resistant, we go to the Gentiles. So a cultural strategy. Pay attention to your target group and adjust accordingly. That's what these guys were doing. The third thing you see these pioneer missionaries using is what I call a flexible strategy, and it's got two different parts to it. The first way you see their flexibility is first in their response to opportunities. Verses uh, 6 and 7 say, When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. Sergius was the governor of the island who would have been appointed by the Roman government. He's known here as a man of intelligence and understanding, maybe one of those guys who was really into religions and philosophy that were so prevalent in the first century, and he wants to hear the message, and so he sends for Barnabas and Saul, and the missionaries head right over there to uh, take advantage of that open door. I doubt that Barnabas and Saul saw this coming, but it shows that they weren't just fixed on their own plans, but ready to respond to the opportunities that the Lord presented to them. The proverb says, a man's heart plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. You need to, yes, have a plan, but also be flexible because God may surprise you. When someone wants to hear the word of God like this, you don't have to say, well, that's a little bit of a shift for me. Give me a couple days. Let me Pray about it and see if I feel like God wants me to give it to you. No, you just do it. You just open your mouth and do it. So many times you feel unprepared for something like that. You might not even have your Bible with you or whatever. And I still feel unprepared when people ask me about stuff. And I still feel inadequate after a conversation. Like I think of all the cool things I could have said. But like, oh man, okay, Lord, try to use this mumbling that I just did. You ever feel like that? Like you just didn't quite get it right? Hey, welcome to spontaneity. And if you don't know how to share the message though, you can always just 
at least admit that and then tell them maybe what the Lord has done for you. And what I will often do if I feel, if I'm kind of taken by surprises, I will just utter, usually in my heart, a quick prayer. And it's not like, oh dear heavenly father who dwelleth in the highest heavens, praise be to you. I don't go through the whole thing. I don't even say in Jesus' name, amen. I usually just say, help Lord. And that's usually in my heart, but I got busted once. I was on the phone and somebody asked me a question and I must have actually verbalized that. And they said, what, am I that difficult? (laughs) So seal the lips before you do the prayer. Life lesson. But you know what? Nothing motivates us to study like having someone in front of us who needs the message and we don't know how to share it. Peter tells us in his first letter that we should have a strategy to be ready always to give an answer to everyone who asks the reason for the hope that you have and do so with gentleness and respect. That's one of our uh, tasks as believers is to get ourselves ready to share the message. Jesus said, go out into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. And so it's pretty hard to get out of the will of God when you respond to an opportunity to share the message. You can do it with confidence and trusting that the Lord is going to give you what you need. And then if you feel like a failure, like I so many times do, go home and study your brain out until you kind of got a plan to do. Sometimes though, As you start to share with someone, you can encounter interruptions or things that you didn't plan for, and that conversation sometimes just kind of comes to a halt. Here in this case, with these guys, the message gets blocked by a sorcerer. Verse 8 says, But Elymas the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. This guy was a sorcerer, not like, you know, a sleight of hand guy. Like when we think of magicians, you kind of think like, boom, 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 you know, that kind of stuff. Not at all. Wasn't that good? Yeah. Uh, This guy, no. (laughs) This guy was more like a sorcerer, more like a, a, a witch doctor. And again, you can see here their flexibility in uh, responding even to opposition. Look at verses 9 and 10. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? Here, I don't know about you, but Paul's response seems harsh, but he is doing it under the control of the Holy Spirit. It says right at the beginning, Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, said this stuff. And he calls this guy an SOD. (laughs) I can use that because the Bible says, right? Son of the devil. That's probably a direct play on Elymas' um, Aramaic name, which is, it says a little earlier, Bar-Jesus, which means son of Savior, son of the Savior. Um, instead of Bar-Jesus, Paul is saying, you are Bar-Satan. 
You are a son of the devil. Just like Satan, Paul says, you're full of deceit and wickedness and you're making crooked the straight paths of the Lord. Now that is a very insightful statement for Paul to use. He's making crooked the straight paths of the Lord. We read in Luke chapter 3 that the job of John the Baptist was to make the crooked places straight, just the opposite, and to prepare the way of the Lord as the forerunner was promised to do way back in Isaiah chapter 40. And John did this to his audience by tearing at the things that the Jews were trusting in that blocked their understanding and their ability to trust the Messiah. He was chopping the legs out from under those guys. And his calling was to prepare people's hearts so that, and minds so they could understand and believe the message. But this guy, Elymas, is doing exactly the opposite. He's making the straight way, which the Lord wanted, crooked. In other words, he's making it almost impossible for the governor to understand and receive the message. My guess that he was, is that he was probably doing some kind of supernatural thing that drew people into thinking that he had a connection with the source of power or that he was the source of spiritual power. Now today, Satan is still setting up barriers like this to keep people from understanding the gospel. It may be a false worldview or philosophy or belief system that blocks the way, or even some supernatural demonic activity that makes them look elsewhere for help. When we worked with the Batak people in the Philippine jungle, it was a group, a small group of nomads living in the jungle, um, I discovered just how crooked and skewed the Batak's worldview really was. And I knew that I was going to have to deal with that before I could share the gospel with them. And so, and that's because their worldview, their religion would actually block them from understanding the gospel. They were not going to be able to understand it until some of these things would get taken out of the way. For example, they believed that the world was run by good spirits and bad spirits. The bad spirits were out to get them. They caused sickness and death. They tricked them, all of these awful things. Those spirits were called panya'un. Try that, Val. Panya'un. The uh, never mind. Uh, almost went into a linguistic sermon. Uh, the good spirits were called diwata. And the Batak believed that the diwata were there to protect them from the panya'un. So when someone was sick, they would call on the witch doctor who would go into a demonic trance and lead the group in a chant to the diwata. He was looking for answers and uh, trying to find out which evil spirit was causing the sickness. By the way, the guy behind the uh, witch doctor, Major, the, the uh, guy behind him is Elisio, and he became one of the very first believers in the tribe. It was pretty cool. Um, <clears throat> anyway, 
he would lead the group in a chant to the Diwata, looking for answers, and then he would find out from the Diwatas, the so-called good spirits, what sacrifice the Bataks should make to them in order to get the protection that they need from the evil Panya'un spirits. And the Lord gave me a little bit of insight into what was really happening in their belief system. They were worshiping the Diwata. And as I've read my Bible, they're worshiping the Diwata to get protection from the Panya'un. As I've read my Bible, I've seen that truly good angels never receive worship. They're just like, whoa, no, don't worship me. Worship God alone. People fall at their feet and they just say, get up, <laughs> you know, quick. Because a, good, a truly good spirit is not going to receive worship. And so what I had to teach the Bataks is uh, in order to see that the Diwata were not really good spirits was to go back to the beginning at the Old Testament where Lucifer fell and he took about a third of the angels with him uh, as he fell. And I said, those spirits that went with him became the Panya'un and the Diwata. The Panya'un are straight aggressive spirits that want to kill you. But the Diwata are deceiving spirits and they want to help you because they were getting some help from time to time. They want to help you, but really they're luring you to the edge of the cliff because they don't want you to hear God's message. And that was an aha moment for the Batak. It was that little twisted part of their worldview kind of opened up to where they had that option now that they had been deceived. And that was really kind of cool to see that. Um, but when I sat down with Pat Dow, who was the witch doctor, that, another witch doctor besides the one you saw there, um, and I told him that the spirits that he served, that this was their origin and that they were really actually evil spirits, he didn't go blind like Elemis, but he did really freak out and kind of break into a cold sweat, so much so that I was just I was kind of creeped out because I knew he was being controlled by some kind of a demonic force. And I just said, hold that for a second. And I went out of my little study hut up to our little bit bigger hut, where, which was our house, and I said to Sue, uh, I, I think I got some like demonic activity and it was like freaking me out. Uh, and, and so we prayed together and I just kind of put my big boy pants on and went down and talked to Padau. And he let me continue the lesson, but he said, you know what? I, I really can't listen to this stuff because if I do, I've got this fetish at my house. It was some special rocks or whatever that had some kind of spiritual power over him, and he said, if I get rid of those, blood and honey is going to come out of my nose and mouth, and I will die. And so he never actually came back again for, you know, he didn't go crazy and go blind right then, but I think a spiritual blindness happened at that point where he locked himself into his spirits instead of God. And so that was pretty sad for me to see. But you know what? Every culture... And every person in that culture has a worldview, has something that they already believe. They might, may not even be aware that it is a worldview. A worldview is 
uh, uh, the way that you believe something about a God or a supernatural being, about sin, right and wrong, and how to deal with it, and then also about yourself and your position in the universe and before any deities that you might believe in or might not believe in. And our worldview actually serves as a filter for all new information coming into us. Um, It is either accepted or rejected or skewed in such a way that by the time it comes out of our crooked worldview, it's not quite the same. And all of us as missionaries need to understand what our beliefs are and what that person's belief is so that we can gently unravel them or, and loosen their grip on people. What we're doing is we're taking that crooked worldview that they had, their view of God, which is twisted, and we're correcting it. Their view about sin and that it's maybe just an unfortunate mistake that we make and, hey, nobody's perfect, and we twist that to show that sin is punishable. It's true moral guilt. Yourself, they may think that, oh, God is this big grandpa up there and he's just going to say, oh, shucks, I I knew your heart. Even though you were totally uh, wicked, you didn't mean it. And we take that view and we say, you have a need and you cannot save yourself. And we begin to work with their worldview, straightening it out, making the crooked places straight so that the message of the gospel can come through without being blocked or distorted in that person's thinking. John the Baptist did this with Israel. He called them sinners instead of saints. They thought they were Israel, God's special children, You know what he calls them? A brood of vipers. A family of snakes, he calls them. And what he's doing is he is making their crooked concepts straight, preparing them for the message. Jesus did that same kind of thing with Nicodemus and the woman at the well and the rich young ruler. He gave them bad news first because he knew that until they received the bad news and corrected their thinking about who God was, who they were, and what sin was, they weren't going to understand the gospel. The preaching of the cross is to those who are perishing foolishness. And we have to deal with people's misunderstandings before we can bring them a true understanding. So, And we're going to see Paul and Barnabas doing this all the way through the rest of the book as they come to different groups. They're never going to change the core of the gospel. It is pure good news of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. But their approach to people's understanding of that gospel is adaptable along the way. And it needs to be. And that is so that their hearts are prepared for the pure grace gospel message. We will talk more about this and in a lot more detail at the Element U class when we're going through the unfolding mystery. We talk about worldview and it it can become a really good tool for you to use as you talk with people. But let's keep going with the story here for a couple more verses. Verse 11. Here's what Paul says. And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately, mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Because he 
had tried to keep others in spiritual darkness, all of a sudden he's placed in spiritual darkness and punished with physical blindness. It's very interesting that Jesus did this very same thing to the Apostle Paul. Do you remember? He's on his way to get Christians and put him in prison and all of that, and the Lord knocks him down off his high horse, and he is blind, and somebody has to lead him. He was trying to keep people from believing the gospel message about Jesus, and he was struck blind. And here God is using him to do the very very same thing to somebody who's being used by Satan to do that, to block the gospel message. But look what happened here. Verse 12 says, Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. So when this governor, who had been pretty much captured by this sorcerer saw that God's power was greater than the sorcerer's power, it opened his heart to receive the word of God. And at that point, it astonished him. It wowed him. He had this aha moment that this is the truth. And he became a believer in Jesus. And if you look closely, you will see in the passage that ultimately he was astonished not so much by the power, that helped, but by the truth of the gospel after the power displayed diminished his confidence in the sorcery of Elymas. All of these things that the pioneers used here were spirit-led strategies, but ultimately it was God's word that broke through and got a hold of the governor's heart. And if you forget all of the details that we just looked at here, you you can go back and listen again, I guess. But um, if you forget all of those details, it would be good to at least remember this. And I know that Aaron will be reminding you of these things as he goes through, that it is the power of God's word used by God's spirit that brings people to God's Savior. Our job is to be strategically wise as serpents, but harmless as doves as we gently try to help people see their need for Christ. And one thing that we're going to do this year, by the way, that is going to be a a help to you in that is uh, we're all getting together as a church on Wednesday nights for this Element U. My son Jeff and I are going to be teaching uh, and take you through the unfolding mystery of redemption. And it really is a way to rebuild our worldview and help us really understand the gospel, really put it in the context of what God built through all of those centuries. It is going to teach us about the wisdom and the holiness and the power of our God and about our own sinfulness and helplessness to save ourselves. And we're going to learn about how utterly incapable we are to do anything about our lost condition and then show how God unfolded one story 
one image at a time, what he planned to do all along. And then as we look uh, at the New Testament, we're going to present Jesus as a candidate for Messiah and really take a look at whether or not he really fulfilled all of the requirements that we lay out in the Old Testament. Everybody is invited and encouraged to attend. There's going to be babysitting and all of that. It will be nine weeks. There will be two lessons a night, but um, Lord willing, we'll get through it in nine weeks. And uh, I'm going to invite the band to come on up and uh, hopefully... um, You'll take that to heart as far as coming on those Wednesday nights. They wanted me to uh, let you know that. As the band leads us in worship, we're going to share communion together. And uh, communion is it's a time where we take a cracker, which represents, of course, the body of Jesus that absorbed God's wrath for us. And then we take some wine or juice, which reminds us of the purchase price of our salvation, the precious blood of Christ. But it's a time where we actually kind of hit the refresh button on our worldviews and we get back to the realities of what it is that really secures our eternity. And that is the work of Christ. We um, can filter out all of the clutter that has happened during the week or the month or however long it's been, and we remember who our God is and how lost we were and how helpless to save ourselves and how God chose to deal with our sin by sending our Savior. And so as you come and you celebrate communion today, how about just taking a few minutes to kind of review the story in your heart And then bring yourself to a place of gratitude for what God has accomplished on your behalf in Jesus. We are going to have offering, well, we do have offering baskets by the doors. Uh, If you have come prepared to share, that's the way that you do it. There isn't actually an offering taken. Um, It's more received as you voluntarily do that and that is a good idea there's also going to be people uh, at the back stationed if you uh, would like prayer um, they're ready and willing to pray with you and there's going to be some refreshments outside grab some food and um, enjoy the fellowship of people around you let's pray together father we thank you for your word and how it does correct our misunderstandings how it straightens us out so that we can receive the truth of the gospel and the many truths that you want to teach us. We pray that you will help us to be a church on mission, using the strategies that you've designed, but never ever forgetting that it is the word of God used by the spirit of God that has all of the power, and that you just want to use us to communicate that to other people. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.